With the holidays around the corner, now's your chance to save time and money at Safeway Stock Up Sale. Plus, earn four times gas reward points on participating items. Look for tags on items like Honey Nut Cheerios. Select varieties are four for eight dollars with your club card. And select varieties of Betty Crocker Cake Mix, Brownie Mix, or Frosting are ten for ten dollars with your club card. Maximum gas reward at participating Sunoco stations is twenty cents per gallon and one dollar per gallon at Safeway stations in a single fill of up to twenty-five gallons. Other restrictions, limitations, and exclusions apply. For complete details, go to Safeway.com. You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Megdahl, reminding you that you can follow us on Twitter, at Locked On WBB. You can like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. Go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice and if you like us, please go ahead and review us. It's a very helpful thing. Gives us more exposure, more exposure to the game as well. And someone who's brought a lot of exposure to the game of women's basketball through the years has been a critical part of my education is Michelle Smith, who has written just about everywhere you can imagine and uh, is continuing to do so. Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. It's always my pleasure to talk about women's basketball. Awesome. Well, let's get right to it. Let's start about uh, the Pac-12. And uh, something I've really been enjoying is right into my inbox has been uh, your columns <laughs> and features. So that's been extremely enjoyable. And the place I guess we ought to start is the place everyone starts with the Pac-12 right now. And that's talking about Kelsey Plum. And just as someone who's uh, seeing it up close and writing about it up close, what do you think we are seeing historically in Kelsey Plum, not just in terms of scoring, but in terms of the type of impact she's having on the game right now? Well, I mean, she's doing it from the guard spot. And obviously, Jackie Stiles, who's the NCAA all-time leading scorer, was a guard. And there are many high-scoring guards. But I almost think it's harder to do what Kelsey Plum is doing than it is if you're a six-foot five center or somebody like Brianna Stewart, who is incredibly talented, but has the gift of size, which can give her an automatic advantage over opponents. I mean, Kelsey Plum has, you know, her talent is very much self-made and, you know, and that she's scoring with such consistency this year and scoring when, while Washington's a very talented team and they have other weapons, but, you know, but she's scoring when people are doing their very best to keep her from scoring and still scoring at this clip has just been so impressive. I mean, it really is historic, the pace at which she's scoring, the consistency with which she's scoring, and I think how she's doing it. Well, and you make a great point, which is that she's not just scoring the way few have before, but she's doing it at a ridiculous level of efficiency to be, you know, on pace for 50, 40, 90 and doing it while undersized, while playing the guard position, and while running the offense all at the same time, it, it not just seems to me as remarkable for what it what it is here, but it speaks to what she should be able to do at the next level. Are, are you particularly bullish on what she can be for the WNBA? You know, I think that she can have a really, really good WNBA career. It's really interesting because I think that sometimes we end up in this spot where, again, unless you are a really dominant big girl or something, it's a little bit harder to predict how backcourt players are going to do in the WNBA. I think there are a lot of factors involved, but Kelsey has proven to be an incredibly competitive kid. I think the other thing that's really interesting about her, having watched her for four years, is that I thought that there was an edge and maybe even a bit of a lack of maturity maturity 
in her approach to the game in her first couple of years. She would get very feisty. She would sort of get scrappy and not always in the best way. And she really has sort of turned all of that into her game. And again, like you said, she's scoring, you know, she's getting to the rim. She's hitting threes. She's hitting her free throws. She's doing all these things. So I I feel like she has matured along with her game so much that it's made her into this, you know, all around score that's really difficult to stop. And I think that translates really well into the program. It's really just a matter of how she's going to deal with the size, better defenders, better defensive schemes. And if beyond that, she's still going to get that edge to her and find a way to do what she does. That's really interesting. And, And again, what it means is, in essence, by putting her in the captain's spot, freshman year as coach neighbors did it allowed her to get through a lot of things that some players might not even have to handle until they got to the pro league absolutely yeah i mean i think mike really took a chance mike neighbors really took a chance by doing that i mean handing it over to a freshman you know because that also says something to your older players when you've handed the keys to the car to a young player like that but it put a lot of responsibility on her. And I think we've seen in the last couple of years in particular that that responsibility, she's taken it seriously and she's made the most of it. And so you asked a question about a teammate of Kelsey Plum's on Twitter just recently. Asking I did. What, what kind of pro Chantel Osahor is going to be? But I was more interested in what you thought. Mm. And the reason I'm asking is I don't know if I know yet. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that game translates to the WNBA. I don't know if that set three-point shot is going to be able to work for her in the WNBA. Um, I think she moves well. I don't know that she runs well. Um, I mean, there's just, you know, when you're a big girl in the WNBA, I mean, I do think somebody likened her to a Daniel Adams type player Mm -hmm. and Daniel Adams had a fruitful WNBA career. It wasn't, you know, hugely long. She wasn't a star, but she got her time in the league and she played. I mean, I could see a scenario like that for Chantel Osahor. I like her a lot. I think she's tough. I think she is competitive as heck. I think she wants to win. I don't know how that game's going to translate into the pros. And Adams is really the closest you can get in terms of a comp. Because I have struggled with exactly the same thing as you. But And Adams even had the perimeter shot, which is something that Osahor brings uh, as well. But Adams, I think, was not the passer that Osahor is. And I think that is an added dimension. Being able to deliver an entry pass and being able to have that sort of inside-out game seems to me like that's going to be very helpful for not just where the league is now, but where it's going. Uh, that combination of three-point shot and being able to feed the interior. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that could be. I think it, that could give her an advantage if you're comparing her to somebody like Danielle Adams. The other thing that I try and remember is think about a player like Courtney Paris, and mm-hmm. and they're not the same player. They have different games, but they have they were rebounding machines in the college game. They were both big girls who probably people thought didn't move well as people thought that they should, or you know moved as well as other players. Courtney, it took a long time for her to find her spot in the WNBA. In fact, she was out of the league for a little while. And so, you know, I mean, I just think it's different. I think it's different when, especially for post players, I think that if you have to play with, you know, and in the post in the WNBA with Candace Dupree's and Rebecca Brunson's and Tina Charles and these sort of players that if you're going to be an inside player, you've got to play with those girls. So those women, and it's just, it's a challenge. And I think that 
it can be hard. And I'm not sure, you know, somebody like Ruth Hamblin at Oregon State, you know, she didn't end up on a roster by the end of the season. I'm not even sure. She, I can't remember if she was on a roster at the beginning of the WNBA season, but had a great college career. I just don't know all the time if when you're a post player in particular, having a dominant college career necessarily tells you that you're going to be able to do well in the WNBA. Oh, it's no question about it. I, I think she has to be a stretch four in order to do uh, what is necessary to play at the next level. But uh, I certainly, I, I like you, I am curious as to be to see how it happens. And there's another player who you just wrote about recently in Sydney Weiss, who I also think about in terms of the league. And it seems like there's a little bit of an awkward fit. The advantage is obviously that three-point shot where I think she's around 48% from deep. But can she be an oversized point guard in this league? I don't see her playing point. I see somebody uh, converting her to a two. Hmm. I see somebody turning her into a three-point shooter. I think, you know, I don't know that I see her. I mean, I love Sydney Weiss's game. I love her competitiveness, her intensity again. But I don't know. I think that she's probably going to be converted to a shooting guard. Yeah, no, I, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, it, you know, it's tantalizing at some level to have someone who could, you know, back down opposing point guards. And as a lot of the point guards around the league are getting smaller, but it will be fascinating to see. Certainly, you'd imagine there's room in the league for someone who's able to shoot the three ball the way she does. Absolutely. There always has been. I mean, think about it. I mean, there are plenty of players who come in who can do that. You know, I think of somebody like a Nicole Powell, who was not unlike Sydney Weiss in that she was a big point guard who ran the point a lot for Stanford back in the day when she did. And, you know, ultimately in her career, she ended up being more of a three-point shooting specialist throughout her career and had a really nice and long WNBA career doing it. But was, um, I think, somewhat like Weiss in that she had, you know, she could create mismatches from point guard spot and bring the ball up and but and didn't end up in the in WNBA settling into that role and then of course a guy like Mike Tebow in Washington would just yell at me for even talking about positions in the first place <laughs> he's so focused on the positionless WNBA well and so, that's the, you yeah. know that's the thing is Sydney Weiss could get drafted by somebody who has a completely different vision of it I think that yeah. you know but but I think ultimately she ends up at the two no, I, it makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about a uh, fellow Oregon team. Uh, that's the University of Oregon. I had the privilege of being able to see them this week. What do you think about their development so far? Are they ahead of where you thought they'd be with such a young team? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think that they're, you know, I think UNESCO is a really talented player, Ruthie Hebert. I mean, Kelly's doing a nice job of building a program over there. They've got facilities. They've got a good reason for players on the West Coast to want to go up there. Um, you know, I think that they're going to be really good. I think that they're pretty young. I think that, you know, they've got... They've got a little bit more work to do, but I don't think they're far away from it. And, you know, and they're coming back on some teams and, you know, in Pac-12 games and UNESCO hitting that big shot at Cal in front of hometown fans. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I think that they've had some really exciting moments to build on. Um, they had a good non-conference season. They had a really good record. Um, I don't think that their schedule was as challenging as some other schedules were. So I think that he built a lot of confidence with a good win-loss record coming in. But I actually think that they're a very talented young team. And I, you know, I still, I think Kelly's a great recruiter and he's going to build that program into one of the power teams in the conference. So they're at 47 in RPI right now and 12 and 6 overall. You think they need to do better than hold serve? How 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 well do they have to play down the stretch? You think to earn one of those Pac-12 bids into the NCAA tournament? I think 
I think Pac-12 is going to get a huge benefit of the doubt this year because of the strength of the conference, mm-hmm. which is not to say they haven't earned it, but I think that they're going to get a lot of credit for what the, comp- the, the upgrade in the conference. But I don't see somebody, you know, you've got to be probably living pretty close to 500 in conference play mm-hmm. in order to get in, I would think. I mean, I don't imagine a team that's, you know, playing 400 ball in the Pac-12 you know, getting in, especially when, you know, maybe some of the non-conference schedules aren't as great. I mean, the RPIs are as good as they are in the, in the Pac-12 because they're playing each other and they're playing such good teams with such good RPIs. And we, and there's a few really good wins out there for some, for the Pac-12 teams, but I don't know that, you know, playing really far below 500 in Pac-12 is going to get you in. And it's funny, you look at them at two and four in conference and if, if they had lost at USC, they'd be looking at one and five and they were down 16 at the half in that game. I, so they, they really are right at the edge of things, but there are no easy games in this conference. I, no, they're not, but you can, you know, but if you can, you know, I think the second round through maybe sort of shakes the, you know, shakes things up once again. I mean, I think right now what you're seeing really is, you know, this literal rising of the cream of the crop in the Pac-12 when you look at the difference between the records of the very good teams, the top teams that we sort of expected, and then the ones that are – um you know, are still working or either are building or having injuries. I mean, Washington State is just getting pounded with injuries. Mm. And they played probably the toughest on-conference schedule in the Pac-12 this year. And they're just absolutely getting hammered. And I think they were a really talented team until they started getting knocked down with all those injuries. So, you know, it's a really good conference. And it's a tough – it's tough to get wins. In in terms of Chanel Molina, have you heard anything definitively about where she – I have not. I checked on it last night, and I haven't gotten any word back from Washington State. Yeah, just just such a talented freshman, and and really sad to see her go down with an injury. Hoping, obviously, for the best for her. In terms of UCLA, and I want to talk specifically about Monique Billings, who, who's someone who you've written about as well. Mm-hmm. What exactly do you think we are seeing in terms of Monique's game developing? You know, she's starting to put up now twenty, thirty point games as well. She's able to do a little bit of everything. What is she and what does she need to be for UCLA to maximize their talent this year? Well, what I thought was interesting when I did talk to her was that she's been reaching out to the Gumake sisters. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a pretty good model for what the kind of player that Monique Billing wants to be. Long, athletic, powerful, quick, you know, efficient, and and UCLA needs her to be all of those things. And I think that she's doing a really good job of rounding out those parts of her game. Um, you know, the Washington weekend was a tough weekend for UCLA. That was obviously a setback weekend. That loss to Washington State was probably one of the biggest in-conference upsets in, in Pac-12 history. Um, but but UCLA had a great bounce back weekend at home. And you know, Monique Billings is a big, just a big part of that. But I think, you know, it's kind of that Ogumke model that Monique Billings is really striving for. And Corey Close said something really interesting about Monique when I talked to her, which was in, in essence that, you know, Monique arrived and sort of thought, if I take care of my business and everybody else takes care of their business, it's all good. And she's really come around to the fact that no, well, you need to, I'm, you know, now I'm a leader. I need to pull everybody in and make sure they're taking care of their business. And we need to do this together rather than a bunch of people, you know, rounding out their games individually and hoping that they can put the pieces together. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting to see. And it seems as if UCLA is on the brink of that breakthrough. I, you know, I saw them fall to Texas in the Sweet 16 last year in person. And it seemed like the team that was a year away. And even with that near a field, it seems as if, 
they are a Final Four contender, uh, perhaps as much as anyone in this conference, uh, along with Washington. Uh, do you see it that way, and do you see UCLA as uh, a team that is in that conversation among the powers this year? I do, and I do, but I want to see them. I want to see them get a big road win. Um, I want to see them, you know, I mean, Washington was an opportunity for them, obviously, because Washington's playing so well. Um, I want to see UCLA get a big road win. And then I think that I'm going to really be able to see UCLA in those terms. But I want to see I want to see a really gutty road win against one of the top teams in this conference. And I think that I will probably be a little bit more on the final four potential train. Washington, I think has, you know, I mean, they went to the final four last year. Nobody in the country has more swagger than Kelsey Plum, right? I mean, you can't play that game, the game she's playing without having a ton of confidence in what you're doing. And so I really like Washington having a decent shot at it. And, you know, I have to say, I'm surprised not in the sense that they're a good team, but Oregon State really bounced back great. I mean, when you think about, you know, Ruth Hamlin and Jamie Wisner and losing a couple of really important cogs in that machine that they had going, and then, you know, they've really come back and they play such good defense. They make it so hard for teams. Um, you know, I really like the way Oregon State looks too. In losing Hamlin and Wisner, it, it really felt like it was going to be a rebuilding year. But, uh, you know, Scott has them playing – as freshmen, like Oregon State played last year, yeah. defensive efficiency is right where it was last year, which, you know, again, speaks to not just what they can be this year, but if they're doing that as freshmen, it seems like that paints a ceiling that's even higher for them. Yeah, it does. And there are really lot, there are a lot of good freshmen in this conference, but Oregon State has some of the really good ones, and they're doing a really good job of making those players have an impact and, and doing the things that they want to do and doing it their way. Yeah really impressed with Oregon State. And then I actually would be remiss not to mention Stanford because I think that Stanford is having a very, I'm going to say business-like season, and I'm not going to say that to sell them short on what they do. But I think Stanford is just doing what it has to do. And, you know, it's it's winning the games for the most part that it's supposed to be winning. Double overtime gets Oregon State at home. I know Oregon State hadn't won there in a long time, but this is a really good Oregon State game, and that game went back and forth the entire way. I think, you know, Stanford, it's ridiculous to say Stanford's a sleeper because they're not the team that we're really talking about right now. But, you know, they're just really efficient, and they're going about it in a very businesslike manner, just sort of moving through the conference, I think, and winning the games that they're supposed to win. So interesting. It, it, when when the Pac-12 was not getting as much attention, perhaps, as it deserved, Stanford was getting the lion's share of it. But you're right. It really is like they're under the radar. Do, do, do you think the UCLA road win that'll make you feel more confident in their Final Four is the game at Stanford? It's on the 6th of February? Or do you think it needs to be something like a win at Oregon State? Um. I mean, you know, I think Oregon State, Stanford, or Washington would qualify for me, right? Yeah. So, um, and the Washington game kind of, and the Washington game are obviously already came and went. So, Oregon State and Stanford, I think, would be really either of those would be really big gets for UCLA and have me a little bit more convinced that I think that this is that they can, you know, that they can sort of see it all the way through. Not because I don't, you know, I think they're an incredibly talented team. I just want to see it. I want to see a big. I want to see a big win on the road. Go ahead and prove it. No, it makes sense to me. And then let's not lose sight of Sophie Bruner over at Arizona State, who seems to be the common factor last year into the issue with the success that they're having. Are you surprised by the level of play that they have had this year so far? And and what are they? What do you make of them? They, they well, seem like such a puzzle. 
They well, I always think Arizona State's a puzzle. To be honest, <laughs> I you know I talk to Charlie fairly frequently and things, and I think that the days of the sort of the deli line where she was playing a ton of people 20 minutes a game and that I mean I think that she's you know moved you know they've moved past that at least at this point but she's also somebody who's depending on three freshmen in the backcourt and they're all playing really well and Sophie Bruner I think is playing great um and again they do what they do their identity is tied to defense it's not really surprising that these teams that are depending heavily on young players Oregon State and Arizona State are two of the best defensive teams in the conference. I mean, so while your freshman players are catching up to the speed of the game offensively, while they're finding their offensive games, then you teach them how to play good defense and a good scheme, and you give yourself a chance to win all the time. Although in both cases, you're talking about coaches who are able to get that defensive cohesion early on, and that's not, yeah, that's not always a given. So really No, it's impressive. not, but it's about, but you don't go there. You're not a player. You don't. If you're a player, you that's don't choose to go to Arizona State or Oregon State unless you know you're going to play D. No, that's a, that's a really great point. So I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm yeah. going to ask you how many teams you think the Pac-12 ultimately gets in and uh, which teams you think those will be. I'm going to say seven. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to say seven. Let's see. Let me reel. Now I got to now I got to do them on my fingers here, don't I? Okay. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think it's going to be um, UCLA, Stanford, Oregon State, Washington. All right, hold on. Arizona State. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got kind of a mix. Cal's got to figure some things out. Yeah. Um, Cal, Chris, you know, Christina Nigue is a fantastic player. And I, but I would imagine that Lindsey Gottlieb is one looking, you know, and saying, okay, we can't do what we did last year. We cannot tank once we get into the conference season. We've got to figure this out. But I think that Cal has a shot. I think Oregon has a shot of getting in. Who am I leaving out? So that's <laughs> Washington State, Utah, Arizona, Colorado, and USC. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think USC, it's not, you know, they've got some nice players, but I, you know, with one conference win at this point, that hole, that hole's pretty big to climb out of, I think. Yep. Um, Washington State with the injuries, I think it's hard to know. Arizona's not ready yet. Um, and then, you know, that leaves Utah and Colorado. And I think that there's a shot that either one of those, you know, that there's a, you know, I just think among that group. Colorado's going to have to come back around and sort of figure out what worked for them. Mm-hmm. And I was a little bit afraid that this might happen with Colorado, where they were going to build a really nice non-conference record, having not played the strongest non-conference schedule, and then come in and get a bit of a wake-up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, I can see – I think I'm going to say seven. And I think I'm going to be optimistic that there are a couple of teams like Oregon and Cal and who are going to figure it out. Yeah, I think those are my seven right now, and I am not giving up on Utah, although it, it may just be the part of me that wants a national audience to see Emily Potter play. But yeah. I think uh, I, I think they have a shot also, you know, two and four in conference, so a little bit smaller hole to climb out of as of right now. But, yeah, it sounds sounds about right, although the, the dream, of course, of 10, which is where I think Charlie Cream had them uh, back in December, that would be – uh, yeah, yeah, but you see. know everybody came in with such great non-conference records, and yeah. and and some of those were again bolstered by maybe not the strongest scheduling, and that's fine. I mean that's great. You've got young teams, you're rebuilding, then you want to play game a lot of games you can win and build a lot of confidence. But mm-hmm. this conference is a gauntlet, 
I mean, really, every week I was chatting, I chatted with Cindy Weiss last week and I, you know, and she joked about how stressful it is. And I said, I look at the schedule every week and I go, oh, I want to see that game. Oh, I want to see that game. I mean, really, there's just every night in the conference, there's a couple of games that you really want to watch as a fan. As somebody who's covered Pac-12 women's basketball for, you know, two decades, I mean, I think this is strongest the conference has ever been and it's the most exciting. Uh, it certainly is, and, and and watching it every weekend is appointment viewing for anyone who loves the game, to be sure. As far as the WNBA mm-hmm. and a lead that is in the midst of some exciting offseason moves, potential moves, big picture I'd love to start with, and, and you had a, a two-part Q&A with Lisa Borders. I'm curious your perspective, how you thought year one of the Lisa Borders era went, and what were some of the biggest takeaways for you, both from what she said and what you saw? Um, I think that year one under Lisa Borders went great. And I say that with the caveat that it was the 20th anniversary season. And then some things happened that, frankly, um, you know, I think you know, the Olympics obviously brings a lot of shines, a lot of light on women's basketball and on the team. And then, you know, I think the social justice efforts really put they gave the WNBA players a level of respect in, and a level of attention that was obviously coming from the outside, which, you know, I thought was great in the sense that the ways that the WNBA usually breaks into a mainstream conversation in our sports culture is a fight, a controversy, somebody say something, somebody did something, and this was about something bigger and not everybody agreed with it, but I thought it was very, it was really positive attention for the league. And in a really backwards way, I think it was obviously um, the the issue with the players in the jerseys, and it, I thought that was um, and finding the players. I thought was a misstep on the part of the league that I think that they legitimately turned and learned from quickly, yeah. and offered an opportunity to extend a conversation that was important. So I don't think, you know, I think that they were, they managed to turn something that was a mistake into an opportunity, which I think is important. And I think that the league did well, but I think that there were a lot of reasons why that was going to happen. And then honestly, and I love the Minnesota Lynx. I love those players. I think, you know, I mean, they're just the greatest players to deal with. I love Cheryl Reeve, but I thought that seeing LA win the championship was really, really good for the league. And I thought that the postseason structure was mostly good. I'm not a huge fan of the single game elimination games um, because I think for the WNBA, you your star players are gone after one game like that. Tamika Ketching's career ended like that. Elena Deladon is out. You know, I mean, when you aren't giving people a chance to see your best players in your postseason format but for one game, I don't know. That was my, the biggest problem I had. I thought that the rest of it and the setup was great. Eliminating the conferences, matching the two best teams, regardless of what conference they were in. I thought those were all positive developments. The single game eliminations in those first couple rounds, you know, I thought about, I, you know, I've pondered like a play-in structure with a best two of three and then a two of three for the final, the semis and then the five. Like I've sort of knocked around some scenarios in my head, but I thought that the league just loses the opportunity to showcase its stars when you have those quick eliminations in the early rounds. Well, you also penalize teams, in this case, three and four in the league and, and the Liberty's case, a team that was in the conversation for 
top two, three all year, suddenly had to play a single elimination game uh, against Diana Taurasi, and she right. doesn't lose those typically, especially right. on the road. So that was really a difficult scenario. It worked to the extent this year, I thought, that there were two teams that were head and shoulders above everyone else. And so within the framework of the lead as it existed in 2016, it made some sense, although I agree with you. To me, I'd rather see best of threes, uh, if not best of fives, every step of the way. But you're going to have scenarios and have years in the league, and it's happened many times, where there are three particularly good teams. And the gap between number two and number three is enormous. And I, I think that's problematic in terms of how you're rewarding them. I, I think that's, that seems to be the general consensus across the league that at the very least, even if the five, eight, six, seven games have to be single elimination, that next round really has to move to three, to at least a Yeah, three. that was my, and, and but you know, they're going to stick with it. So when you're asking me about my takeaways is, was I think that they thought it was successful and they felt good about it. Now, you know, some of this is, some of this is logistical as well. I think some of the arenas that they play in as you edge toward the fall want to book events. They want to book concerts. They want to book other events. And so we know we've had plenty of postseason experiences in the WNBA where somebody gets moved because Disney on ice is showing up and they're going to have to go play at a college gym somewhere. Right. I mean, yep. it has happened to the LA Sparks. They've had to play in Long Beach twice in the last couple of years. Right. I mean, there are logistical reasons why an extended postseason doesn't make sense. The other part of it is, is the travel costs are enormous. And, you know, especially on tight turns and the way that the way, the way you're formatted. I don't know, however, you know, easy for me to say, because I'm not writing the checks, but I don't know that switching from two single elimination rounds to one single elimination play in round, and then a best of three, best of three, like, I don't know that that necessarily jacks up the price too much but I know that there are other considerations for why they structured the postseason the way they did I just didn't love again you know Brianna Stewart and you know and Jewel Lloyd in the storm and out <laughs> and then they're gone <laughs> and you know I mean that was my you know and I think your point's well taken that you know the liberty is the three doesn't you know it's not always going to work out like this it's not always going to lay out where the top two teams are so obviously the top two teams and you can almost pencil it in before you start that being said I thought that having LA win in a fabulous series was so good for the league I thought was that the best WNBA finals we've ever had um, yeah, it was pretty damn good. Hard, <laughs> it's was, hard to top, right? I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the two I'm best thinking teams, of, final you know, possession, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, what were you thinking of? I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah. no, 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 I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I covered Phoenix, Indiana, mm -hmm. when Diana and Tamika just went back and forth in a showcase of two amazing players. And I thought at that time, that was the best final series I'd ever, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was, it was two players at the height of their star power dueling it out. I thought it was fantastic. And so I thought that was a great series. Um, you know, I thought, you know, a, the Minnesota Indiana series the year before was a great series yeah, and really, really interesting was. and compelling in a lot of ways. But this was a, this was a, you know, this was a really, really, really good series with the, 
you know, a great dramatic ending. And it was really interesting because I was sitting at the end of that series. We were at the, it was Pac-12 Media Day, mm -hmm. and all of the coaches were sitting in a restaurant in San Francisco together with some media folks and some other folks that had been invited to the dinner. And so, you know, I was, was sitting at a table with a lot of folks, and Tar Vanderveer was at the next table watching NECA take the game-winning shot and just smiling from ear to ear. It was a very cool place to see and just a room full of women's basketball coaches watching that final game together. They had We made them drag a television in just because, you know, we we the, the way the timing worked out, we said, oh, there's a finals game on, and they rolled the television in, and we all got to sit and watch. But it was um it was a very cool way to finish it. But yeah, it was an incredible ending. And I just thought having Los Angeles win, having Minnesota win, Minnesota such they're such great ambassadors for the league. Mm -hmm. Um, but having LA win that series I thought was ultimately good for the league. Well, not only that, but think about the rivalry. And I, I just that's to me the difference between even let's say Indiana and Minnesota is that there was clearly no love lost between these two teams. And right. I think that is so helpful for the lead and driving interest, uh, you know, moving forward, because you not only had the prospective rivalry, but you have, think about how many of those players are on the young side of 30 uh, on both the LA side and even the Minnesota side, you know, which is a more veteran team, but, you know, Maya being 27, 28 years old. Mm -hmm. So that's something that can go moving forward. And I guess that is what I thought of as a missed opportunity for the lead is opening opening day, opening week, we should have seen another L.A. versus Minnesota game in the same way that on the NBA side, they made uh, Cavs Warriors into their Christmas Day viewing, which is essentially right. the unofficial start of their TV viewing season. Uh, I would have liked to have seen that happen as well. Um, but, but that said, I think there's every reason to think there's a good chance we'll see uh, another version of this series, at least in one of the upcoming WNBA finals to come. Yeah. And it was, and you know, and I think competitive series, you know, final series are really very good for the league because it is their, it, it is their best exposure generally of the season. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends in media who are, get really frustrated. I have um, one friend in particular who, you know, bangs her head on the, against the wall every time she opens up on a Sunday and sees that you've got a loaded women's basketball schedule up against the NFL or whatever, but this is just the way it is. Mm -hmm. This is just how we, you know, this is just the world of women's basketball. The TV slots are open on the days when people are watching other things. And this is when women's basketball are going to get the open slots. And the same with WNBA finals, you're going to get slots that are going to plop you right in the middle of baseball playoffs and the, you know, start of the NFL season and it's just how it is. And so, you know, but I think that there are really good opportunities for exposure with great competitive final series. And those sweeps that we were getting in those, you know, those years where it was three and out and whatever, I don't know that those were necessarily helping the, you know, the image of the league. No, no question about it. And, you know, to that point, I, I just would just add, there is this belief, I think, in some quarters that there's this circle of people who will watch sports and then there's a subset that will watch women's sports and then there's this group of people who you know for whatever reason will not watch women's sports and, and, and I don't really view it that way I view it as there's a group of people who will watch sports across the board men's sports women's sports there's a group that will only watch men's sports but there's a group that tunes in to watch women's sports that isn't necessarily watching men's sports and one of the statistical examples i use for that is that the women's world cup final in 2015 drew 26.7 million people that is the largest audience for any soccer game in america 
it's not a men's soccer game. It was a women's soccer game. And so, again, that argues to the idea that if, if MLB playoffs are going on, if there's an NFL game on a Sunday, that doesn't necessarily mean that a group of people who are going to be watching the WNBA or are going to be watching a terrific Pac-12 matchup, or, you know, the way we had with Washington and UCLA on national TV, that, I think, is still an opportunity. And to get those TV slots is showing up, is being in the arena. And that's so much more important than where it is or trying to plan around uh, or tiptoe around this or that men's sporting event. Right. No, I, I don't disagree with that. But I think that the, I always have always struggle with the Women's World Cup analogy because World Cup is an event and basketball mm-hmm. doesn't have an equivalent event. Like, a, you know, it just there's no, you know, I was bugging Laurel Ritchie about, you know, get FIBA to bring the women's world championships to the United States and let's get the, let's get the U S team moving around the country, playing in a world championship tournament, you know, in different spots and try and get them some exposure in some, you know, because whenever we, the world championship years come up, they leave the country and they go to Croatia or they go to some far flung place and nobody knows they want a world championship and nobody watches it happen and nobody watches it in gyms that they can go buy tickets to and things. So I would love to see FIBA put a world championships in the States and have us put those games on TV and create an event that I'm guessing is not going to duplicate what the women's soccer you know, and what the World Cup did, but gives the women a chance to have a buildup and a U.S. showcase for the international game and a bit of an event that people can rally around because the nationalism thing is big. I mean, it's big to put, you know, I had my USA headscarf on and, you know, and sat in the sports bar that I went and watched you and cheered with a big group of people or whatever. And people like those types of events in terms of viewing and they bring people together and they're good for the games that benefit from them. But U.S. women's basketball doesn't have any of that, and they need it. And and I love that idea about having the world championship. And I think even more than patriotism per se, to me, what we saw with the Women's World Cup in 2015 and why those numbers broke all previous records is that Fox treated it the way they would have treated a men's World Cup. You know, they they had something to prove. They'd never hosted – Uh, They'd never put on a World Cup before. And so in this case, women's soccer was the beneficiary. But it really does. And and this is to a larger point that I'm sure you agree with, which is that the gap between the number of people who are watching women's basketball and watching men's basketball really does come down to how often it's talked about, how much media covers it, and how much it's in the public eye. You, You simply cannot live and breathe in this country without seeing and hearing and understanding and knowing about the NBA. And when the WNBA is in the same boat, only then will we get a real sense of how big the audience for the league can be. Right. But that requires a, that requires an investment on the media side yes. that um, not only isn't happening, but is steadily retracting. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, that is a completely different podcast hour. Yes. <laughs> Which we, and, which we ought to have, and well, and I'd be, and I yes. would be happy to have that discussion, having right. been sort of having lived that retraction. Right. Um, but you know, I mean, it's you know, but let's not, let's not skirt around the fact that at some of our major media outlets, let's say every team in the WNBA has its own assigned beat writer, mm-hmm. and the WNBA has one and a half people covering an entire league for an entire season. Yeah. Or you know, I mean, you know, there are. It is more and more difficult. I can count on, you know, now 
one hand and with just a few fingers on one hand, the number of people who are making a living covering women's basketball in this country. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it absolutely has to change. And I would argue not only does it have to change for, let's say, moral ethical reasons, it has to and ought to change because there is money in doing the right thing. There is an audience out there and a significant audience out there being underserved. And if you are one of the thousands of media outlets chasing the clicks for an individual thing that LeBron James randomly said at shoot-around, or you are going where the crowd in media isn't, you have an opportunity to serve people in a more fundamental way and to build an audience that would otherwise not be there for you. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> we well, and agree yeah, on but that. again, but again, I mean, we could do, we could have an entirely different conversation about that, and yes. you know, but clicks, clicks have not been the friend of women's sports. Right. Measuring measuring content and where you put your resources into content by clicks has not been good for women's sports. It's not. Um, there, you know, in my old days at the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle and covering Stanford women's basketball and Cal and whatever. And the number of people who said that they would read a story in the newspaper, the numbers were actually quite high because you got, you brought them content that they wanted to read. But in the old newspaper days, you had to take a survey of people and have them fill it out in order to see how many people were going to read it or how many people were going to read it who wouldn't, weren't going to read it anyway. I mean, there were just a number of ways. And I'm not saying that these, what we're getting now aren't more quantitative measurements of what people want, but it's certainly turning the world into a, you know, it's all about clicks. It's all about views. It's all about whatever. And so then people are just running away from the stuff that they don't think generates the kind of viewership that they can measure. Well, and even worse is a situation where if something is not covered on a regular basis, uh, and, and you see this with so many women's sports stories, that there are outlets that aren't covering it regularly when they do it's done in a haphazard way. So people's habits have not been built. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the individual clicks for an individual story may not be as high. And then that's used as some sort of uh, catch all idea that, all right, women's sports can't generate that type of audience. And I guess I would argue that without a good faith, long-term effort that's being put into it, we don't really know whether clicks can or cannot be good for women's sports. And I think, I think we need to see that, and I think that investment ought to happen in part because you say it's been bad for women's sports. Clerks have been bad for journalism as a whole. If you look well, at the direction, well, that's going. true. So <laughs> maybe it's time to try something new. Maybe try and provide coverage that isn't already being provided, rather than uh, go down uh, the same uh, memory hole, and that leads to fewer people watching and digital advertising rates that don't keep up with print. And right. like you said, a whole other conversation, but uh, an important one. And one I think. Well, you think let me know when you want to have it, Howard. I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Well, Michelle Smith, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this and a long time in coming. So I've, I've been uh, a reader of yours and really glad to get the chance to chat with you as well. I appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Just a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, LockedOnWomen'sBasketball, or go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes. Build that habit we were just talking about. And make sure you rate us as well if you liked what you hear. I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day. And now enjoy some bonus coverage 
I spoke to Oregon guard Lexi Bando following their recent win over USC. Small victory. Thank you. Um, just bigger picture in terms of your game. Uh, for a lot of players, it, it's a difficult thing to figure out when to shoot the three uh, and and when to go to the rim. For yeah. someone who it's better than a break-even proposition when you take the three-point shot. How has that changed your calculations as you're figuring that out during the course of a game? Um, well, first off, it starts with my point guards. Um, I have incredible point guards that get me the ball. Um, I think I've been really trying to get versatile, too, mm -hmm. not just being a shooter, but being able to drive. Right. Um, but if hands down, man down, that's what people say, right. and then I'm going to shoot when I'm open. So. And, and But you did tonight. I mean, especially yeah. in the first half, you were attacking the basket yeah. uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, when it comes to that, it was it just what you were seeing from USC that you know that was an opportunity, or is is it just that people are giving you even less space to shoot the three, and that's opening up your drive? Yeah, I think it's just reading the defense. Um, people want to run me off the line, so I have to read it. Mm -hmm. I have to score somehow for our team and be able to help us. So mm -hmm. um, reading their defense tonight, it was just the drive was more open. Mm -hmm. um, they gave me one look at the three three point. Right. So. Um, I have to evolve my game and um, find other ways to score and help the team. You guys, just as a team, have been really efficient on the offensive end, and that's, yeah. I think, helped you come back from some deficits, you know, not only tonight, but obviously just recently as well. Um, how do you account for the way which you're able to slow teams down at the defensive end in second halves? What, you know, what's making that happen for Yeah, I think it's honestly, I think we're a great offensive team. I think what it's going to come down to is um, defensive stops. And I think in the last two games for us, we've really grown as a team and being able to run different de uh, defenses and, um, you know, press, get back into a zone, play man. Mm -hmm. And I think being versatile like that really helps our game because it throws the offense off and, mm -hmm. um, I think always giving them different looks is really important. To see Ruthie, what, what she's able to do, just not just in terms of scoring, but just mechanically as a freshman, I, I, how do you account for that? And, and is it surprising to you to see for someone, you know, just getting started in the, in the yeah. college game? Ruthie doesn't play like a freshman. She doesn't. Um, you know, nobody thought she was going to be this good, and she's doing amazing things. Um, I think she's second mm -hmm. in the percentage right now in the mm -hmm. nation, yeah. which is amazing. It's honestly incredible for a freshman. Um, the sky is the limit for her, and uh, I love playing with her. How much do you enjoy coming back, especially, you know, a situation like this, you know, you, you gain national renown for, you know, for the recent uh, comeback late, yeah. but, you know, what, what what kind of added pleasure do you take in that? What's that What's that like as a player on the court for you? Yeah, well, first off, it should have came out a lot harder. It should have never came down to this, but, right. um, you know, that's the fun of basketball. You never know what's going to happen, and mm -hmm. you always have to be ready, and um, playing big, in big moments is what I think uh, my teammates and I live for, and um, just being able to, like, know what to do in situations. I think our coaches have really got us ready for that. When you think about yourself at the next level, you think of yourself as a combo guard? Is that is that the you know the way you want to take your game from here to there? Yeah, it's definitely a combo guard. Um, I mean, just in terms, you know, for, for the WNBA, you know, having a skill like being able to shoot the three as well as you do is going to be really significant by itself. But for you, I, I mean, is playmaking the next step? I think definitely playmaking is the next step for me. Um, that's where I'm starting to evolve my game, I think, this year. And um, I think being young as a freshman and sophomore, I wasn't ready for that step. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if I'm not going to get open looks, I need to somehow 
be a playmaker on the floor for my team and not just a shooter that stands in the corner. Do you have a comp in mind? Just someone someone who you'd like your game to evolve to between now and the end of your senior year? Well, my favorite... Can I steal her after this one for Of radio? course, yeah. absolutely. My favorite player is Larry Bird. Right. Um, so I've watched film on him ever since I was little. Um, well, he'd be my dream player to be like. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well,